Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting, enthralling, pulse-pounding edition of SFP Now. Um, with me, as usual, um, for the first time in quite a few weeks, actually, on the uh, pre-recorded show, uh, is Raisa. Um, we kind of decided to take a break from pre-recording and, and try, try, try something else, but it didn't work out, so we're back. Uh-huh. Um, so I'd like to welcome Raisa back to the show. Thank you. Um Although it's kind of like it's a weird sort of welcome because we've kind of been doing the shows, doing doing, doing this part live over at Vlog Talk Radio for the past few weeks, and it's just not really worked for us. So we're back. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to start the show off. It, we've we've had quite a bit of sad news this week. Um, first and foremost, um, at the beginning of the week, um, well, it was actually the beginning of last week, um, we lost the late great David Bowie. Um, he was a uh, sixty-nine, and he died uh, due, due to a uh, cancer. Mm-hmm. And you know, as someone who's actually a musician, it's it's kind of it's really sad news to me because it's so like uh, it's weird because one of the first songs I learned on 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 the guitar when I was learning about rhythm, rhythm playing and stuff like that was "Man Who Sold the World," one of my favorites, which is off the Hunky Dory album, I believe. Yes, um, and. You know, Bowie's always been around, you know, so like, um, you, you know, you had Man Who Sold the World. He's had sci-fi shows written that are based on his songs, such as, uh, you know, Ashes to Ashes and uh, Life on Mars. Mars before that. Before that. Um, so, and, and he's been in sci-fi and fantasy films himself. He was in The Man Who Fell to Earth, um, as well as Labyrinth. And The Hunger. And and the hunger, and also the the whole Ziggy Stardust phase of his career back in the early seventies. Yes. Um, in fact, one of his later roles was as uh, Nikola Tesla in The Prestige. Ah, I did. That was that was him. Yes. I've not actually seen that movie yet. It's it's, it's one it's, I've not seen. It, overall, it's not as good as it could have been, but it's worth it to see. It's, it's, it's worth it to see Bowie as as, as Tesla. Mm-hmm. And and he did that during that that was sort of like right around you know shortly after the time that he'd gone quiet he stopped recording. Yeah, although he had recorded his his final album was released literally days before he died. Mm-hmm. So. I know because um, Janet, who runs the studio where I uh, do a lot of my recording, she's a big Bowie fan, and she she actually had it on her Facebook literally days before he died. Mm. Um, but it's funny, uh, when I went in the studio last Monday, um, the cafeteria, um, all the dishes were sort of like named after Bowie songs. Oh. <laughs> That's kind of a homage to him. 
and you know we had we had a bit of a jam session in the morning where we we actually uh, you know played some Bowie songs, mm. which was fun. But it's 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 really sad news because in in a way he kind of shaped um, modern music in so many ways. You know he, he was pioneer. He pioneered the the, the uh, music video sort of thing. Turned him into somewhat of an art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know he, he he just did so much as a, as a solo artist. And you know unfortunately we'll never see his like again because. You know, the reason he, 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 he did so much as a solo artist was because it was all him. Yeah, he, he invented a lot of stuff. The, the, there wasn't any music moguls or, or like producers telling him what to do. He produced yeah. and created everything that he did. You know, sure, he collaborated with other musicians and, and people that to make videos with and stuff like that. But um, it was all his ideas. Yes. You know, so, you know... And you know you can't envisage someone like him working with with a mogul like Simon Cow back in the day. Oh, please. <laughs> it just uh, it it just wouldn't work. And you know I, I'm kind of hoping we do see his like again. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that something happens in the next year 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 or two or three or however long it takes uh, to break the uh, the hold that the likes of Simon Cow and and what not have on the music industry because at the moment in popular music everything just sort of sounds the same it does it does and you know i think there needs to be something 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 big really needs to happen to actually change that i, I basically in order to cope with it i basically am listening to what can be classified now as classic rock which includes scarily enough basically everything in, in addition to the 50s 60s and 70s also includes uh, everything I grew up with in the eighties now because we're that old. Mm-hmm. You know, um, stuff like uh, Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi is classic rock now. Really mm-hmm. freaky. Um, all the synth pop stuff, all the new wave. Oh god, I hate the synth pop stuff. <laughs> I, I grew up. I, I liked it. I, I grew up with it, but I hated it. I was always a, I was always a guitar guy. Mm. You know, even back then. Um, I mean, you know, Bon Jovi adapt, you know, adapted his sound to 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 have synthesizers and keyboards, sort of thing, and and he, you know, that was one of the things that that they they did well, sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I I just hated anything that was uh, totally dependent on synth. Well, the paradox, which is kind of interesting, is that even though you had a lot of these synth bands, the the um, lead singers of the synth bands could in fact actually sing. And mm-hmm. uh, um, they they were kind of overshadowed by the synth, but they had voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas um, now to have this little thing called auto tuning, so you can have very mediocre singers. Yeah, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, well, it's 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 just a uh, really sad. It, you know, it's a great big loss to, to the music industry and and to the world of a uh, world of film and television. Yeah, he was he was he was so effective because he was a crossover. Not all of them could cross over, but he managed to do it. And he managed to do it early on in his career as well. Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, so like um, another person we've lost this week. Um, Alan before, Rickman. Yeah, Alan Rickman. Yeah, absolute bitch of a week for, for fandom. <clears throat> um, yeah, there's another one that went as well this week. 
not not is nowhere near as big a name as Angan Rickman or um, or David Bowie, and nowhere near as talented, but still, you know, quite a big chunk of um, of, of people's childhoods if they they were around like you and I in the seventies. Um, I actually found out last night that we lost Dan Haggerty. Oh my god, I he, didn't know about that. You know, that. he he, yeah. he died of cancer. He was a uh, sixty nine, I think, or seventy one. Not sure. And oh my god, so it's like everybody's dying of cancer right he, now. He passed away to cancer, and as you know, he played Grizzly Adams. Oh yes, you know? yes. And, yes. and sadly, that was the only thing he, he was ever known for. You know, he he, he did a lot of other roles. Um, he, he had a small role in Easy Rider, and he, he sort of had roles where he was in other things, but he was ne- he, he never really outran the shadow of, um, of Grizzly Adams. Sometimes it's like that. Mm. But... You know, I was sad to hear about his passing, but yeah, as 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 we were about to talk about Alan Rickman, that is a huge loss to to film and television. Massive last, loss. Last night, I did a uh, labyrinth, sense and sensibility double bill in their honors to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I watched Die Hard. I watched that over Christmas, and I wasn't in the mood for it mm-hmm. again. Well, I didn't watch it over Christmas. I watched it um, two nights ago. Mm. Um, because you know he just plays the ultimate villain in that. It's it's so awesome that they they couldn't even top it themselves. Mm. And they tried. And they tried. You know, even Jeremy Irons couldn't top it. And that's saying something. Cause Jeremy Irons is no slouch. <laughs> Although Jeremy Irons was awesome as a voice of Scar in Lion King. Oh God, he was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, and, you know, so there was Die Hard. There was also um, the the instance where he made um, a really mediocre film watchable, um, pure comic comedy comedy uh, gold as the sheriff of Nottingham in Star Trek in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, so so much comedy gold that even Star Trek had a go with Worf as Will Star- Will Scarlet shortly after Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves came out. Oh, but you know, sort of like uh, I, I loved him as a sheriff of Nottingham in that film. You know, he, he was just awesome. And mm. of course, Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. Oh my God, Alexander Dane. Mm-hmm. You know, the typical um, put upon British actor. You know, who's um, so much, so much better than the role that he's bequeathed to play. <laughs> <laughs> he's bringing in that. Um, but of course, most people will know him for um, Harry Potter. Yes. And he, what's interesting is, I know you haven't read the books, but for those of us who have, um, Snape in the books is written considerably younger, mm-hmm. but, but they, they accommodated the fact that Rickman was older because Rickman mm-hmm. and, um, people just say almost universally that he, he stole it. He owned that role. Absolutely. Even, yeah. I mean, I'm not really a huge fan of the Harry Potter films, um, Probably won't be a huge fan of the books either, mm. because you know they're they're written, you know they're written for a young audience, and granted, you know some some adults like yourself go go in for that sort of thing, but I prefer to read a Harry Dresden novel. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, that's okay. You know, I, I don't like uh, I don't like the, the these uh the, these child you know kids that are wizards and stuff like that. <laughs> Just you know. As far as far as I'm concerned, children should be seen and not heard. <laughs> you know, it's something I would have enjoyed as a kid. Yeah. I'll say that much. But you know, the the adult in me just so I can't really go back to that sort of thing. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, he did own those roles, and you know he, he was great. And another another thing he was really good in. He only had a very small role in it. He was in it at the very beginning. Was the um, Kevin Smith movie Dogma? Have you seen that? Um, yeah, I think, it's, but it's been a while. Mm. Yeah, uh, he's he's brilliant value in that. But he's only in it right at the very beginning. I think he plays the angel Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. But he, he was absolutely great in that. Um, as sense and sensibility, that's uh, again, it's not my sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it makes me happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, we've got two, 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 you know, two massive losses this week, and um, once one, one not so big loss, um, but still, 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 still loss to the industry nonetheless. Yeah, uh, with yeah. Dan Haggerty, who you know passed. So um, the question is. Um, you know, are we going to get a bit of a break now before somebody else somebody else passes away? Because that's sort of like three three names right on the bounce. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if we think about, it, we also lost another great in the music industry um, back in December um, with Nemi Motorhead. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, Nemi Nemi Killmaster. He was, um, you know, we we watch science fiction and fantasy sort of thing. His life was science fiction and fantasy. Because how he lived to to, to to the ripe old age of seventy, with the amount of cigarettes and alcohol and drugs that he he he'd done over a lifetime, is nothing yeah. short of a bloody miracle. Yeah. Because he was still drinking and 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 smoking and and stuff like that, probably right to the end. Mm. You know, he, even Slash, who's my favourite guitarist, um, he he had a serious drug problem and alcohol problem sort of thing, and he's been clean now for twelve years. <laughs> Bowie was the same way. He put everything in his body back in the seventies, but he's mm. clean by the time he died. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's been clean now for twelve years, and he saw like um, he says that. You know, basically, mentioned in in his biography that you know when 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 he when he worked with, with Motorhead when he was clean, sort of thing. <laughs> you know, he was still getting off the drinks and stuff like that. Oh wow! <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. But that's uh, that's another bit. Of, that's that's four big names we've lost over over Christmas and early January. So it's you know it's quite a sad time. Mm. Um, but how about we move on to something happier now and maybe talk about some of the shows we've got coming up? Yes, um, I would like to mention that um, Arrow, The Flash, they come back this coming week, mm-hmm. and uh, DC's Legends of Tomorrow deb- debuts. So it's um, The Flash is Tuesday, followed by, on ABC, by Agent Carter for Marvel fans. Mm-hmm. I watch both. And then Wednesday is Arrow, and Thursday is Legends of Tomorrow. Okay, well, um, The Flash and uh, Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow um, are not going to be back on British television until February. Mm. Um, there's a bit of a lag. Um uh. I do know that uh, Agent Carter is going to start on the 28th of this month, 28th of January. and it's Last season or this season? It's the new season. The new season. Okay, cool. The last season uh, finished airing uh, back in November here mm. uh, because it took a while for, for a network here in the UK to pick it up. It's actually aired by Fox over here. Mm, okay. But I've got a series linked on my, uh, my new TiVo box, so we're good. Um, another show that's starting up on Friday here in the UK is the uh, the first Marvel Studios British production. Um, it's written by Stan Lee called Lucky Man. Okay, I don't it's, think I'm not sure where that's airing here. Um, well, I don't think it is airing there yet. It's okay. premiering on Friday here in the UK on Sky One. It stars James Nesbitt. Okay, 
Okay, cool. I, I enjoyed him in, in, um, in Moffat's Jekyll, so that should be fun. And the premise is, is he's basically a, a London-based detective mm-hmm. who's got a gambling problem. Um, he meets a woman who gives him this bracelet, which changes his look for the better. Mm. Sort of thing. So it's, it's so that's loosely the premise, and uh, it's, you know, he kind of follows his, you know, his changing fortunes and takes a look at the implications of that. Mm, okay. You know, as in, you know, if he's lucky because of this bracelet, um, who's going to get unlucky as a result of his good fortune? Mm, okay. You know, so you, as you know, in with anything that's enchanted, there's always a cost. Right, right. Somewhere. So it kind of looks at that, and um, the rest of it's kind of police procedural, I think. Oh, okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a look and see see what it's like. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's one of these things that's coming on that I'm a little bit unsure about. Yeah, yeah. And it's nothing to do with the actor, it's just to do with the premise and, and stuff like that. It, yeah, yeah. The, the, the issue with Stanley is that he he's of his generation and the narratives he crafts are of that generation and he never really evolved beyond a certain point mm. so they can get kind of a little bit retro in terms of the motivations and the characterizations which is okay if you're in the mood for that but you have to kind of be aware i don't think i don't think that'll be the case with this so because this is a big production for sky one that's true for sky television so you know, Stanley will probably... It's, it's called Stanley's Lucky Man, but i got a feeling that there, there'll be uh, there'll be other producers and, and writers involved, you know, that, that'll provide it with a bit more of a modern sensibility. Yeah, yeah. Sort of thing. But be be based on Stanley's notes and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, because if it was just all Stanley's um, idea and uh, all his story and stuff like that, I can't see Sky One carrying it. No, no. You know, so like, um, if you take a look at what Stanley's output has been over recent years, it's yeah. always been for song like, uh, you know, through, through third party company or a company that he's set up just to do it. Sort yeah. Of thing. yeah. And they've usually song like, uh, been here today, gone tomorrow, and then he's set up another company. Mm-hmm. I mean, how long did Power Entertainment last? Not very long. And then there's that, this, there's a, supposed to be a venture between him and William Shatner partner, last mm-hmm. I read. Yeah. Um, you know, t- talking of which, um, we've, we've learned recently that Shatner will not be in the new Star Trek movie, Ooh. which um, I don't know if to be relieved or happy about that, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's, it's kind of like one of those things, because it's sort of like uh, the, the, the new Star Trek movie, I'm, I'm kind of like a little bit, I don't know, I'm looking, I'm looking ahead now really more to the TV series yeah and i'm hoping the tv series stays true to the original prime universe of star trek and doesn't meander off into an alternative universe yeah i if it's alternative i'm not going to watch it beyond the uh, pilot i'm if if they're going to make us pay for it i'm only going to pay for a series that's set in um in in some version of the original timeline yeah i'm I'm frankly not really interested in the um in the alternate timeline beyond the films Mm -hmm. and um another other show we got coming up um is um well this won't be out till spring um that's houdini and doyle Doyle. yes i just I, i sent you the um the uh, uh, promo for that last yeah. night. They, they did the first trailer. It looks yeah, fairly, just, fairly good. It's just gone up yeah. on the site because I, I posted it just before we started recording this. So. Cool. But that looks fairly interesting sort of thing. Um, 
It's a it's a limited series. It's only ten episodes. Like I can swing that. Yeah, well, um, I got a feeling um, it could be pretty good. Um, I'm hoping that it, it's. Uh, I'm hoping that it turns out to be better and um, a faster entry point than the recent Jekyll and Hyde series. Yeah, from what I could tell from your reviews, that was kind of uneven. I, I don't know if that's going to air on BBC America. I didn't bother with it. Mm. Uh, I'm watching it through alternate channels. I figured it would either air on BBC America or it wouldn't. I enjoyed it, uh, but it was kind of uneven. Um, it had mm. a lot of pacing problems, mm. sort of thing. Um, and by the time we got to the end, it was sort of like um, it ended just as it was get, starting to get really interesting. Um, I'll put it this way, but the sad news is it's not not being renewed for another season. No, I, I knew that. Yeah. Um, it was kind of I kind of suspected it wouldn't. To be honest, mm. I mean, it was getting enough viewers to justify coming back, sort of thing. But I got a feeling that ITV just didn't know what to do with it because they they put they they, they started off really badly by airing at seven pm, mm. and you know the subject matter of it, stuff like that. It's more it's post watershed show. It should be nine pm. Should be the earliest it should should be shown, and then mm. they moved it to eight pm, sort of thing. But it was basically it was basically airing every Sunday before X Factor. Yeah, it doesn't sound right. So it's just um, I just got I got a feeling that it probably would have done better if it was if if, if it was aired on a on, on a cable channel such as um, Sky Atlantic or something like that. Mm. But unfortunately, it's not going to be back. And um, we've got the third season of um, Penny Dreadful coming up. Yeah, which. It's going to boast the return of the, uh, of, what was it now, the cut woman or the cut lady? Uh, the, uh, the actress who played the cut wife is going to be playing a different role. Mm-hmm. And she's been, she's been cast as Dr. Seward, who uh, fans will recognize as uh, a name from uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. original Dracula. Yes. Yep. And um, you know she was good in that in that in yes. that, in that yeah, episode. She, considering she only had one episode, and, and given that given that they got Patty Lupone, they were only going to get her for one episode for that at least. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she basically stole that one episode, and her her presence is felt throughout the rest of that season. Absolutely, and um, she also had Eva Green lift in her game as well, which is which is saying something because Eva Green has proven herself not to be a slouch. Eva Green is is really going after this performance uh-huh. as uh, as Vanessa Ives. So Yeah, she's she's you know, she's brilliant, you know, so like um I've actually had a mad crush on her since seeing her in Casino Royale. Yeah, I can understand why. She's she's uh she's drop dead gorgeous and an awesome actress. Mm-hmm. And she's got she's got very striking eyes. Very, you yes. Know? Um and um, that's that's all I've and very expressifies as well because when you mm-hmm. when you see her praying and doing her incantations and stuff like that, and yeah. her eyes are rolling back and stuff like that, it's completely and utterly believable. It's yeah. kind of both scary and mesmerizing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You know? But I'm looking forward to that because I've just um, I'm coming towards the end of the second season now because I've just got Sky. Um, I've switched my cable package from Virgin to Sky so I could get mm-hmm. Atlantis, Atlantis back. And I've just been watching the box set. Yeah. Um, yeah. And another box set I've got on there is Fallen Skies. I'm thinking of actually just revisiting that to go all the way through it, just to see how it ended, because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the moment, would be not much on here in the UK. It's probably a good time to do it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just... I just think Penny Dreadful has been fantastic. I, mean, I thought the second season was was great. It was bang on. Whereas the first season, it was hard work. 
Yeah, but I, I kind of forgave them because they were literally just trying to get their feet up, you know, under them. So mm. the, the first seasons of most shows are basically trial and error. Mm. Well, the first season of Penny Dreadful was Snowed and Jekyll and Hyde. Mm. Which is saying something because Jekyll and Hyde was quite quite slow, but uh, to start off with. But the one thing that sold it was the uh, was the actor that was playing the due role of Jekyll and Hyde. He he was so you know he's so charismatic and he he flitted between the two different roles kind of effortlessly. You know mm. he did he did a really good job on it and um, and also uh, Richard E. Grant's part in it um, was. You know, proved to be quite sinister and sneaky in the end. Mm. Sort of thing, but you know, not not at all in a bad way. No, no. What else have we got coming up? I know we have got Lucifer coming on. We got Lucifer, which I will check out, but I don't know if I'll stick with it. it depends on how I feel about it. We've got the X Files revival starting not this coming week, but the week after. Mm-hmm. Um, Heroes is ending. Thank God, it needs to end. Have you been watching it? The I, I have, but I will be time shifting the finale for uh, Legends of Tomorrow, uh-huh. which I'm not sorry about because Heroes Reborn, a lot of the same problems as the original series, a lot of really interesting concepts that were just not properly realized. I seen the first episode of it uh, a few few months back when it first started airing in the states. It's not 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 aired here in the UK yet. Um, yeah. Because it's one of those things. I think Channel Five has it, mm. which is probably why it's not aired here in the UK yet. Because they tend to uh, schedule things about six months after they've aired in the states, mm. because they'd rather show Big Brother yeah. and reality TV shit. The, or, uh, or, the, it is, it is, it is close ended. Although they had an option for a second season, but they haven't renewed mm. it. Which is actually is a good thing. And Channel Five is also showing the X Files, mm. but. Thankfully, the X-Files is going to be aired here in the UK in February. Mm, okay. So it's not going to be too too long after the US premiere. Um, I am kind of like torn about the X-Files, to be honest, because I was kind of getting bored of it towards the end of the series. I was too, and I, I saw the first of the films, but I skipped the second one. I barely even remember the first one, and you know, I don't even care. Um... I'm basically in it for the standalone episodes. The way it's going to work is the first and last of the six episodes is, is the, are the mythology episodes, mm-hmm. and then the four in the middle are standalone. And I'm basically in it for the standalone episodes because, because I, I was basically in the for the original series of the standalone episodes. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care about the mythology stuff. I might give it a look, but you know, um, I'm not I'm not going to be too bothered if I miss an episode by mistake. Uh, it's, it's kind of one of those because I, I kind of just got bored of it yeah and it was nothing to do with the characters and stuff like that it was just so like the they they kind of like got so wrapped up in their own mythology that it came back to bite them on the butt yeah yeah it it, it became unwieldy it was, it's one of the things I, I never liked about the series and I, 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 I could kind of tell early on that it was going to go that way Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of one of the reasons why I gravitated to the standalones and kept up with it that way. And we've got we've got other shows coming out. There's so much coming out. I mean, obviously, there's the uh, sixth season of Game of Thrones, which is coming out in April. Yes, that's going to be interesting because bless his heart, he hasn't written book six yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the thing is, fans were screaming at HBO for years that this was exactly what was going to happen, literally. Yeah. And and uh, fortunately, the producers of the show, Weiss and Benioff, um, 
have sat down with him and, and made him give them outlines so, mm-hmm. so that they so that they can continue regardless of how quickly or not he gets the remaining books out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, see how the relationship between Daenerys and um, and Tyrion, you know, how that continues because it it was kind of uneasy. Yeah, but interesting. Yes. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that pans out, um, and um, and also the um, you know Tyrion's uh, sister, or is it sister-in-law, um, or mother-in-law? Well, um, if his sister is Cersei Lannister. That's one. Of, that's what yeah, I'm that's talking sister. about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know the the fact that she's um, being completely shamed and shunned by her people now. Yes, you know it'll be interesting yeah. to see how that pans out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know whether she'll be able to reclaim her power base or not. Um, su- such as it was because it was, yeah, such <laughs> as it was. because it was kind of it was kind of really built on um, you know sexual favors and murder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. So that that'd be interesting to see. Um, and also, um, I'm kind of hoping. What, what's the name of the character now? Ariel. Um. Eh, 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 you know, Macy Williams. Oh yes, Arya. Arya. I'm hoping that you know, sort of like to do something interesting with her this season because last season I was bored. Yeah. Um. Blame the books. <laughs> uh, they were basically going with her book storyline. And that was that was that was uh, Martin's fault, basically. Yeah, it was boring. (laughs) Basically, it was um, it was weird and boring. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I'm kind of hoping they do something interesting with her this year. Part of the problem, um, I don't know how much you know about about Game of Thrones production history in terms of the books, but part of the problem we're having is that. His initial his initial uh, outline for the story was not seven books; it was three. Mm-hmm. And his his editor, who frankly deserves to be burned in effigy, um, convinced him to expand in the series. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good thing because that's led to a lot of the structural problems. Yeah, I bet. And, and um, I, w- I would frankly have I would rather have had the trilogy. Frankly. Yeah, it's, it's just it's weird. Um, you know, to say say the least, um, and you know, I'm I'm kind of like um, I'm a little bit. I don't know. I don't know exactly how I feel about Game of Thrones coming back. To be honest, because I didn't watch. I didn't actually watch the last series until after it stopped airing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of, I was kind of in a weird place with it. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it was because of the, uh, you know, the, the, it was just feeling a little bit too plot heavy for me. Yeah, it it, 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 it dragged, but again, that was that's a lot. A lot of that is down to Martin and the choices he made in the books, mm-hmm. which were structural choices um, dictated by his. Well, let's just say strongly suggested by his editors, uh-huh. who, um, who were basically got overly ambitious and, and wanted to milk the cash cow, mm-hmm. and uh, it's backfired yep. rather spectacularly. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got um, another series we've got coming out later on in the year is the uh, Doctor Who spin-off. Class, yes. Class. And I've read, I've read articles that uh, Peter Capaldi wants to do a uh, guest appearance or two on that one, which I hope he would do, because apart from that, I honestly don't know what the Doctor Who connection would be. I mean, Clara's gone, Danny's dead, 
and they're not, you know, hell will freeze over before they bring in William Russell as Ian Chesterton again, even though his name is on the freaking plaque in the front of the school. Um, the school so, is a connection. Yeah, the school is a connection. Um, but it's way more tenuous than it should be. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really wish that they would um, grow up here and actually, if, if they're going to be a spinoff, be a spinoff. If they're not going to be a spinoff, be a separate thing, but figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 kind of a weird one because it seemed to be announced out of the blue. Yeah. And yet at the same time, this has been announced out of the blue and uh, the likes of Big Finish have been kicking butt with the uh, the River Song Diaries, Churchill, the Churchill years. The, the, those box sets are awesome. And the, uh, the unit, the new unit ones, I absolutely awesome. love that. Yeah. The, the River Song one in particular was yards better than the Christmas special. I mean, I, I wish they would just televise that box mm. set. Let's face um, it, the Christmas special was shite. Yeah, and I mean, it, it was shite because it was a Christmas special. If they had just done it, if they had just done the River Song part without the Christmas special part, it would have been a lot stronger. It wasn't just that it was a Christmas special, though. It's like the, the whole the whole premise was like to uh, pull on our heartstrings because this will be the last ever meeting of River Song and the Doctor. Yeah, which was and, structurally necessary because it was foreshadowed, but beyond that, it's like, why? Why are we watching mm-hmm. this? And but, um, I mean, they could they could have alluded to it or given it given it to us in another format. Yeah, they couldn't given it as in a web in a, in a mini web series or something. Yeah, um, and spent a lot less money on it because the you know everything that happened in that Christmas special before that moment, before that meal in the restaurant or whatever it was. Was just total and utter bollocks. Even by the usual standards, and my and the Christmas episodes have never been my favorite. Even even the first one in Christmas Invasion, which is arguably one of the better Christmas specials, even that one wasn't as strong as it could have been. Well, you know, Christmas Invasion was really good, and it was on like the first episode in which you know we had we had a Doctor Who night episode, and you know because if you think about it, Dingy Piper and um, Camilla Cordray and um, the the actor that plays Mickey. Uh, carried that for, yes. for the first hour. Yeah. And, you know, Tennant didn't really come into it properly until the last, sort of like, maybe 20 minutes. That's true. That's and true. and from that point on, he just totally fucking owned it. Yeah. <laughs> I just... I mean, I, I, I love that, you know, if you go back to Tennant's era, it's actually really, really good to revisit now. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, where, whereas, so like, uh, in comparison to what we've had, you know, sort of like the first year of um, of Peter Capaldi. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the writing was more consistent. No, the, I mean, Capaldi basically carried his name. Mm-hmm. And um, more power to him for doing that, but they need to get the, the scripts, need to get tightened up. Mm-hmm. And also, um, Capaldi reckons that this next season he's doing could well be his last. I'm... I think a lot will depend on the writing. If the writing is middling to shite like it's been, he'll probably walk. <clears throat> if they give him good stuff, it might re-energize him. Mm, well, I think I think the writing this last series has been really good. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of the Christmas special, which was sort of like, um, you know, a, a bit an error. I think what they should do is they should actually give Capaldi license to write his own episode. Yeah, he can. <laughs> because you know if he's an Oscar, he's an Oscar-winning writer, so he's actually more than qualified to do it. Yes, he's an Oscar-winning writer with almost encyclopedic knowledge of the series he's operating mm-hmm. within, beyond the fact that he's playing the Doctor. So he's more than qualified. To do yeah, um, and knowing that, he could probably write uh, Stephen Moffat under the table. Probably could. You know, and that's that saying something. Given that Moffat's actually uh, 
actually a Hugo winning writer. Yeah. But it's interesting to know that he's not won a Hugo since he took over the took over the reins as a showrunner. No, it's like it's like it's like the worst thing to happen is him as showrunner. Before that, it was awesome. It's like he needs to be the guest writer. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if someone does take it over from him, if he will still write for the show. I, I hope so. I hope I, so. I hope so, but I'm kind of hoping he takes a break first yeah. as well, because, yeah. you know, because I think he, I think he probably needs to walk away from it and come back fresh. Yeah, I, um, I've read articles that said he's begun the early process of looking for his successor. Uh-huh. So. Doesn't whatever. need to. Mark Gatiss. <laughs> no. You know? uh, it, it should be Mark Guinness if he has time. Or, or you, you, you can, you can, you know, go with Neil Cross. Another one. He could do it. You no. Know? Um, well, of course Neil Cross could do it. You know, he's, he's been doing it for years with Luther. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just whether Neil Cross would want to do it or not. Yeah, yeah. I know fans want Gaiman to be showrunner, showrunner, but the thing with Gaiman is his material is awesome, but if you look at his output... Um, someone else is producing this, um, his stuff, even when it's based on his own material. That's true. He's, he's never been the head honcho on stuff, even even when it's produced on his own on his own material. Mm. I, apart from anything else, I don't think he has the showrunner skill set. I don't think he logistically understands what that is, because whatever you think of Moffat's narrative choices or Davies' narrative choices before him, they're both excellent showrunners. Mm-hmm. They both understand the process of actually making the show get from A to B, B to C to D. And I don't think Gaiman understands that in quite the same way. So I don't think he's going to be able to give fans what they want. Um, it's, going to, it's going to have to be someone who can balance Doctor Who as a narrative with the actual logistics. And that's not Gaiman, sadly. Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, both... both- Russell T. Davis and uh, Stephen Moffat have been working had been working in television for years before they be, before they did that too. Yeah. As as both writers and showrunners in their own right. Yes. Sort of thing. So they you know, whereas Gaiman's sort of like um you know, he, he he's somewhat like Paul Cornell, as in he can write across the um, across you know, across several different media. Yes. Uh but but that that, that that's that's what what it is. Um, you could argue that both uh, Russell T. Davis and um, and Stephen Moffat are good showrunners because they've chosen very much to specialise in television. True. Whereas you know the likes of uh, Neil Gaiman, excellent writer though he is, and uh, Paul Cornell ha- haven't really haven't really taken the path of specialising. They've just taken the path of. Um, of being, um, you know, solid, very good, award-winning working writers. Yes. Um, that not only just write for, you know, novels, but comics, TV, and video games as well. They'll write for whoever wants You know, yeah. they, 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 they can write and they can adapt their styles to wh- whatever is required. But yeah. um, work, as a, work as a showrunner where they've got, got, got to uh, think about things such as bringing the show in on budget and, you know, bringing it in on time and... And, and, and craft services and hiring actors and you know and and all, all of that all, all of those logistics uh, you know that's kind of like trying to write a decent script and juggling you know sort of like 47,000 different things up in the air simultaneously which, which is which is why I think Muppets uh, writing has declined and he's even acknowledged the fact that his writing as showrunner is not the same as his writing as guest actor Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, so like he, you, you can tell the difference, but that said, you know, when he knocks out a decent script, which he which he happened to do this year, yeah, <laughs> he knocks out a bloody decent script. 
Yes. You know, you, you can't can't really argue with it or contest it. No. Um, no. I mean, I'd love to see Neil Gaiman come back and write for Doctor Who again. Because I think both his episodes are absolutely fantastic. But, yes. you know, yeah. you know was, was it the uh, Silver, Nightmare in Silver he wrote? That was his second that, one? That, that, that was the second one. Um, and while I'm not a fan of the Cybermen in general... As a take on Cybermen Go, I thought it, I thought it was um, you know very interesting, and he, he certainly gave the actors a fair amount to do. And I'm sorry, but any story that makes Warwick Davis Emperor of the Universe is is worth it for me. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Warwick Davis is the Emperor of the Universe. You know, there's no question about it. <laughs> you know, he, 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 he's he's a he's a tricky character. Is that Warwick Davis? He's actually running everything in the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know um i i i um i don't think i don't think he 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 he'll he'll be able to top what he did with the doctor's wife no no gaiman's best episode was the doctor's wife and he, even he acknowledged it because he he went to twitter he's a big presence on twitter and he even went to twitter and said because he had a, a fan on say to him you know what are you going to do to top a doctor's wife and he said i'm not even going to try mm. and um and I, I think that I think that's very telling and and very reassuringly realistic. Considering mm-hmm. it's him, it's coming from. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know that episode was just brilliant, and it's, it was marvelous, marvelous. You know the the, the performance of Saran Jones as as the Doctor's wife was outstanding. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd, I'd love to see that character brought back. Yes, somehow, you know, sort of like um, it'd be just really cool to see that brought back. You know, um... I do have one piece of Big Finish news that I need to bring up now that we're talking about Doctor Who. For those who follow Big Finish, um, you'll be pleased to know that for the fourth uh, War Doctor series featuring John Hurt as the War Doctor, which is awesome in itself that they've got him for those series, Uh um, Leela, Louise Jameson, will be joining him. Cool. Because she, because she, of course, was left on Gallifrey, and she's been doing Big Finish um, um, stuff both with Tom Baker's fourth Doctor and set on Gallifrey post her her character's um, departure from the Doctor, set on Gallifrey for for years now, mm-hmm. and so we're we're going to get uh, the War Doctor and the uh, and the uh, and Leela, the Warrior of the Seventeenth, together. Cool. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that as well because um, obviously I reviewed The World Doctor and, and everything. I totally enjoyed that series. It's going to continue. That, the, mm. the one with Leela is the fourth box set in a, in a planned series. And the second box set comes out next month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Um, and I've enjoyed the Churchill one, which has just come out this month. Um, I'm through the first three episodes of it. I'm, I'm for the first two. I'm going to do the second two after dinner. Mm. Well, the third episode is awesome. You know, it's all like, um, it's a Dalek story, which mm. isn't really a massive spoiler. Yes. And it's a Dalek story the way a Dalek story should always be done. Mm. Um, you, you 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 enjoy it. It's just really cool because it's basically uh, Winston Churchill, Julius Caesar, and and Kazaran, oh <laughs> and God. and some uh, some you know queen of the uh, of of the of of the of the of the Brits. Oh my God! Take on the Dalek. Oh my thing. God! They got Bosnia. You know, it's oh just. It's just absolutely brilliant. It's like it's probably the crowning glory of that entire set. Oh my god! 
Um, and I've not even listened to the fourth episode yet. So, you know, you never know. The fourth episode might even be even better than the third. <laughs> so, but I, 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 I listened to the first two. I enjoyed the first one. The second one I found to be quite slow mm. and creepy. And, you know, I wasn't really too sure about it. Because it was more cerebral. Mm. And maybe it was because I was listening to it while I was half asleep as well, which is never a good idea. Mm. Um, but the uh, the third episode, wow, you're going to yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, I'd, I'd be happy if they just released the box set with just that one episode. <laughs> it was that good. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're knocking out of the park with the uh, with the new new Doctor Who stuff. A big finish. Yeah. I'm so like, I'm really being impressed. Yeah, a big big finish does really good stuff, and mm. I'm, I'm very pleased that they've finally gotten the license to the modern elements because they're they're doing the modern elements justice. They've been doing the classic elements justice for quite some time, but mm. they're they're showing that they're ex- equally capable of doing the modern elements justice. Yeah, they're actually doing the modern elements better than the um, TV series, I think. Yes. In in many many ways, but yeah. that said, they got more time to they got more time to work with, and you know they're probably not as uh, constrained by. By, by schedules as a TV series is... No, and, and in fact, one of, the, one of the things I said when I reviewed the River Song box set relative to the Christmas special, which I had just watched, was what Big Finish had was time. Mm-hmm. And that, and that I, I kind of bemoaned the fact that one of, one of uh, the variety pack of reasons why Big Finish was out doing the televised stuff was because they actually had time to outdo the televised stuff. They mm. had the time for the, the the crossing the crossing the T's and dotting the I's and the flourishes that you need with this universe, mm. and um, and the TV show even even with the two parters, the TV show is just not not getting them. It's, it's not getting them. The trouble is with the TV show though, since its return in two thousand and five, the, the 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 focus has always be has been very much to sell Doctor Who to the American audience. And in order to do that, they, they, they've had to lose a lot of what made the original series, classic series, so good. Yeah. Had to lose a lot of the character beats and stuff like that. Um, you know, to, to get the fast pacing and, and stuff like that, that, that the American audience thrives on. Yeah, I mean, my the, one of the best examples, and I've brought this up before, um, there's an episode called uh, the, the Time Monster, where... Long story short, the Doctor, Third Doctor and Joe, it's the unit era, Third Doctor and Joe are prisoners in one of the versions of Atlantis. <laughs> there are several that they allude to. But this was, they're prisoners in one of the versions of Atlantis. They're in chains, they're in Atlantean chains in a dungeon, an old school dungeon. And they actually take time to have Pertwee's Third Doctor wax lyrical about existential Gallifrey and daisies. Fuck <laughs> Joe up. Because she's, you know, feeling the strain of being in a dungeon, and uh, and you don't get those kind of moments in the modern series. You just don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 unfortunate um, because it's sort of like um, it adds something special to it when when you do get those moments. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think that's probably about the end of our chat for this week. It's been we've been chatting for quite a while. It's uh, getting on close for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, the interview this week is with a uh, composer, Tom Salter, who um, has, has been doing the music for a few years now for uh, Halo, um, the both the video game, TV series, and now the movie. 
Um, he's also worked with, uh, you know, prior to going into the video games and media, he worked with the likes of Bobby Brown, Whitney Houston, um, Peter Gabriel. Cool. To name quite a few, few, few iconic music, mu- musical names. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, he never worked with Jay Z. So, mm-hmm. and, you know, we should be relieved about that. <laughs> Um, but it's it's a really interesting interview and uh, a really interesting insight into you know what what he does and and stuff like that so I I hope you all enjoy it Mm, so that's it for now folks it's now time for the interview our enemies move deeper into our territory with abandon they must be eradicated Shall we take revenge? Abandon the mantle and all that its philosophy has given us these thousand generations. All our plans have been torn asunder. More reason not to abandon our beliefs. The mantle is our guidepost in times such as these. We must not falter in following its teachings. The enemy must be sent home and taught to stand with the galaxy rather than rail against us and take what they desire. The mantle shelters all. Didact, you make a fair, if uncomfortable, point. You have my support. Librarian, will you likewise follow the mantle as Didact suggests? Yes, Master Builder. I'd like to welcome um, Tom Salter to the show. Now, for those that don't know, Tom Salter is uh, an acclaimed music composer. Um, he's worked with uh, many people, ranging from Bobby Brown to Whitney Houston. Um, but he's also, um, in in recent years, over the last fifteen years, he's become quite heavily involved in doing soundtracks for video games. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the show. How you doing? Hey, Ian. Uh, glad to be here. Um, it's it's great having you on. I mean, I've been reading, you know, a little bit about you and and, and stuff like that, and. Um, you know, it sounds like you've got some really interesting stories to tell, so I've been looking forward to this uh, for a while. Um, I think the best starting point, really, is um, to ask you, how did you actually become involved in the music industry? Was it something you'd always kind of been looking to do? Yeah, well, in the music industry, yeah, it, it really came out of a natural love of what I was doing right in high school. I mean, right out of eighth grade, I got my first synthesizer, and I was just consumed day after day was just trying to listen to my favorite music and try to imitate it and copy what I heard, you know, and and I got really into that throughout high school. They actually had a recording studio and I pretty much made that my second home. Um, And, you know, so that, and that was back way back when, like 1989. So the the 80s actually, yeah, 86 back then. Mm -hmm. So now you know how old I am, everyone. Those Uh, were the days. But anyway, so... (laughs) Yeah, so basically, right out of uh, right out of high school, I you know I, I established in my own neighborhood and network in the in the New York area, you know, doing demos and 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 finding new artists and producing, and um, so that was I mean that's kind of where I started initially. Yeah, it's it's kind of like interesting, you know, because you've you've actually uh, become quite versatile uh, by transitioning from one thing to the other, sure. and. You know, before before you started working in video games, for example, you did a lot of work with the likes of Bobby Brown, Whitney Houston, and and a number of other iconic names. Uh, 
what were those people like to work with? And uh, did, did you ever find yourself kind of getting starstruck? Uh, yeah, um, well, as far as starstruck, no. It's, uh, I'm not the type of guy to kind of get starstruck, but I, I am the type of person to really sometimes sit back and, and look at the, the myriad of, of artists that I've worked with and just the, the, the variety of projects that I've worked with over the years. I mean... You know, I, I always joke around and, and refer to my career as like the Forrest Gump of music careers because I mean, if I if you were to trace my path, I mean, it really almost makes no sense. It's so circuitous. I, I've worked with so many different kinds of people. Some are famous, some you'll never hear of, and it, it offered me the ability to really learn my craft and everything from jazz to classical to hip hop to rock to. Um, I even mixed a. Uh, and produced a hard rock record in the 90s. I mean, that went gold. I mean, just stuff that you would never imagine me doing if you know everything that I'm doing now. Um, and, um, you know, working with all those artists, it, it really gave me an appreciation for, for true talent. And, and um, it's, it's really a huge education um, over the years. I, I mean, I did a lot of dance remixes even in the mid-90s with a, with a DJ named Ju uh, Junior Vasquez. He was really, really well-known especially in those days. And um, so that brought me on to a lot of big projects as well. I was, I was one of his, uh, you know, programmers. Um, you mentioned the, the Bobby Brown uh, reference. In fact, I was on tour with him um, in uh, 91. Uh, I believe it was 91, 92. Uh, I was their keyboard tech and sound designer, I guess. I'm the guy who listened to all the records and programmed all the gear for five keyboard players. And, you know, that was like a, a natural uh, evolution of what I was doing in eighth grade. I mean, it was a dream come true. Now I'm touring the world with a famous artist and doing what I love to do, which is, you know, work with synthesizers and pick out sounds and, and all that. So that, you know, I worked with Mary J. Blige, the same capacity. And, but then I went back into the studio and uh, I started focusing on trying to get artists record deals and, and uh, producing and songwriting. And, you know, so it really helped me learn how to do everything that I do now from A to Z, where, you know, from the initial inception of an idea all the way to the production and mixing and mastering of it. So, mm -hmm. uh, Another person I noticed that you, you, you reference on your website is uh, Peter Gabriel. Now, I bet that was fun um, because, you know, that guy actually, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, um, he was kind of like pushing the envelope in terms of videos as well as um, as well as music. Absolutely, yeah. The, the Peter Gabriel uh, credit was a remix that I did um, with Junior Vasquez. Um, it was uh, from a movie called Strange Days, and it was uh, it was uh, Peter Gabriel in Deep Forest. So um, I it was the first time you know I was given a dat tape those dat tapes back in the days and uh, you know I had an acapella of Peter Gabriel's vocals I'm like oh my god you know this is so cool <laughs> and uh, you know so that's that's where that uh, experience came from yes yeah, that must be like the musical equivalent in the industry to find in the lost ark <laughs> pretty much yeah I was just listening to that I couldn't believe it I'm like this is so amazing and uh, the song was so cool I mean I love Peter Gabriel he's just always outside of the box it does not do what everyone else does it's and it, that's why he's one of my favorite artists is uh it's just really inspiring it just he open he expands you know your mind musically it's just like wow you mm -hmm. know yeah he's 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 always pushed the envelope for me as well um you know he, even back when he was involved with with a uh, genesis back in the 70s yeah yeah, and his voice is one of a kind too. It's just got this amazing texture mm -hmm. to it, and he's just so amazingly talented. So, uh -huh. 
Um, you, you kind of, um, as we as I said, we kind of transitioned into the world of video games. Uh, probably around about two thousand and one, was it? Uh, two thousand and one is where I got the bug. That's where I had my epiphany to get involved. And but it took me it took me until two thousand three to really make a first move in two thousand and four. So, so how did that all come about for you? Um, you know, you know, did 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 you actually approach them, or was it so like, um, or, 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 or did the did the circumstances just align correctly for you to be able to just yeah? Go into I it? mean, that, that's that was like the big turning point of my career, right? So, I mean, I already had a fifteen year career in music business and in production and records and songwriting. But come 2001, I, it was just, um, you know, I was already married. I already had a child. I already had a mortgage. And it just quite, quite wasn't working for me anymore. I kind of almost fell out of love with it. I felt like the music industry was just feeling too limiting. It was too, everything that was commercial was just so in a box. And mm-hmm. it, it worked against my nature just as a creative person. I was always the guy who wanted to say, well, why can't we put a French horn in this song? Or why can't we do this? You know? More like the way Peter Gabriel would always do th- unconventional things, but certainly I was not Peter Gabriel, and now I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to go. So that's when when I first played a game called Halo of all games back in 2001 on the Xbox. Xbox. Um, it it uh, it kind of opened the clouds for me. I had always gained my whole life. I mean, from when I was a little kid in the late 70s, I was playing games and pre Atari 2600 days. But I never quite saw those roads meeting. I never quite saw, like, video games and music. For me, video games was just fun. It was a hobby, something I like to do. And then music is, you know, my main thing. But when I played the game Halo, um, there was something special about that game. And there's something that I resonated with musically. You know, it wasn't a game out of Japan. And, and uh, it was much more familiar to me. And the first thing that I did is, okay, well, how am I supposed to start over, you know? So I, you know, I went on, I think the internet was just invented in those days. And uh, I went out there and, you know, searched around other composers who did the music to this. And I went to this, to the E3 show in in Los Angeles. And, you know, I printed up a hundred CDs of some of my music thinking that, oh, well, you know, people would certainly, you know, raise an eyebrow if they saw my credits. But no one really cares, uh... If that I worked on a share record or, or any other kind of record for that matter. Uh, they really cared what kind of games that I scored. And because I hadn't scored any, I was presented with a dilemma. I was like, well, how am I going to break into this industry? So the observation that I kind of came back with was, okay, no one cares about Joe Blow, the new composer, but they do seem to care about established artists, you know? Uh, you know, we mentioned Peter Gabriel, but, you know, artists like Crystal Method and and and, and uh, Chemical Brothers and Moby and, you know, contemporary electronic artists. This is the kind of music that I that I saw being used in video games and everyone just thought they were cool. They weren't composing, but it was it was music that they would use. So I said, well, I know how to make a record. I can be an artist. Why don't I just become an artist? And uh, that's when I came up with the crazy idea to become um, Atlas Plug. It was it be, would become my artist persona. So my last name, Salta, backwards, is Atlas. <laughs> that's and, cool. And, and, you know, I'm like, well, I, I can't really play acoustic guitar or anything, and no one's going to want to hear piano. So why don't I do electronic music? I'm really good at it. So instead of it being Plug, you know, Atlas Plug, like, or Unplugged, it would be Atlas Plug. Um, and it sounded cool and it sounded like Atlas shrugged the novel. So I'm like, okay, why not? 
So I, I teamed up with a publisher who really liked the stuff that I was starting to do. And um, he had experience in getting licenses in, in the film industry, TV and games. So the plan was, why don't I make an entire album of music specifically tailored to get licensed in video games, movie trailers and TV? Cool. And uh, it was a crazy plan, but but it worked. Before I finished the record, four of the songs uh, were requested by a company called Microsoft for a video game called Rally Sport Challenge 2. And that was my first video game credit back in 2004, mm -hmm. I believe. It's... And that's kind of where it all started. Uh, so the next E3, I went back, and by that time, I had stuff in uh, you know, Project Gotham Racing, uh, a few other video games, and uh, it began there. It began mm -hmm. there, and that's where at least I could get my foot in the door and now take off the mask of the artist and say, hey, it's me, Tom Salta. I really want to score. I want to create original scores. Cool. And a few and a few years later, that kind of started happening as well. And uh, you know, and then now here we are, 2016. Okay. Well, um, you know, video games as as real. I mean, you, you're about the same age as me, so we probably played a lot of the same games coming up. Yeah. Um, you know, the Dead Spectrum games, um, you know, and the Space Invaders and stuff like that. Right. It's actually amazing how they've come on over the years. And, you know, now, you know, when you think about it, you have video games that have entire soundtracks, whereas back then you'd probably have sort of like, um, at most, a sort of MIDI soundtrack. Absolutely. Which... I mean, just look where it's come. I mean, it started with bleeps and bloops and, and you know, now, now we have the likes of, you know, famous uh, Hollywood film composers, you know, scoring these big triple A games. They're, they're, you know, full out movie scores pretty mm -hmm. much. And, uh, and everything in between. I mean, um, I, I just finished playing through over 30 games this year to evaluate for, for one of the, uh, uh, one of the awards uh, out there. And it's a spot. It boggles my mind how good, uh, the music has uh, become, you know, in the in the video game world, and I, I think it's some of the most cutting edge, uh, progressive, and uh, creative music uh, out there in any part of the industry. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you: when working on a, when working on music and sound design for a game, how much difference is there in in the creative process of it to when maybe you work on music for a TV or movie? Um, yeah, there's and... a there's a main fundamental difference about video game music and any other kind of, I'll call it linear form of music. You know, when you talk about TV and film and commercials and songs, it has the same beginning, middle and end. But when you talk about video games, by its very nature, the music is designed to adapt or change to the, to the unpredictable action of playing the game. You know, now, of course, there's a myriad of games out there, styles, so it varies. But you know, the if you had to kind of generalize, you would say that game music has the same beginning, a hundred different middles, and and a whole bunch of different endings. And you know, so when I'm creating music for a game that's intended to 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 work that way, um, you, sometimes you, you think about it as musical building blocks. You know. Um, you know, some games get really micro as far as, you know, a few bars here or they'll get multi-layered where you have to literally create music that has multiple layers that can be taken in and out, kind of like a submix. Mm -hmm. You know, let's say the, the, the percussion here and this here and this here. And then if the monsters all rush into the room, then you bring this layer in that has all this intense stuff. So it can get really involved and very complex in that regard. 
Um, you know, and some games kind of a little bit more simple than that. They'll just kind of go from one piece of music and kind of crossfade into another. But in general, that's that's what really makes the difference is that uh, the, the, the music has to adapt and change uh, depending on what you're doing. You know, I'm working on a, on a game now called Killer Instinct and, and all of the, you know, every all the music that you hear is constantly changing based on what your characters are doing in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of notice that when you're playing as well. I mean, I've been playing a lot of, I've been playing through the Drake, the Drake series again, the Uncharted series, mm-hmm. because I'm kind of like getting myself ready for Uncharted Four, which come, which drops in April. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, in the meantime, you can play Tomb Raider. That's uh, that uh, definitely. I think you'd love that. Mm-hmm. Much in the same in the same vein. Yeah, but I've been playing a lot of Uncharted of late, and you know, you notice the it's the music, the music in that sort of like uh, really cool. You know, it's kind of like uh, Indiana Jones sort of yeah. style, right? Um, Absolutely. You know, it's, um, and that's that, that's one thing that you know, as as someone who's uh, a learner musician, I've only been playing three years now. Um, the one thing that's always intrigued me about music is the way it can sort of just tell a story just with sound. Yeah, yeah, well, that's great. It's a great observation, and that's really what attracted me to music even as a young boy. I mean, when I was 10 years old, that's exactly what I, what I discovered when I started hearing John Williams. You know, back in those days, there were no VCRs, so for me to experience the movie and the story again... I had just listened to the music. And one thing I discovered, which is incredible to me at those in, in those days, is I could just listen to the soundtrack and experience the story. I could tell every moment what was going on. I mean, really every moment, literally. You could see it in your mind. You could tell exactly when Indiana Jones held up the staff of Ra and the light beam came through and shot down in the map room floor. You, you, you could tell in E.T. when he, the, the kids are riding over the hills with the bicycle chase. I mean, you, you can you can just feel it. His, his music is was so good at telling a story, and um, and I take I took that with me into now doing this as a as a professional. Mm-hmm. You know, the video game that you're you're best known for, um, because we've referenced it a couple of times already, um, is Halo, which you do for Microsoft. Um, you've even scored the animated series, and um, you've just scored the movie. Um, Forgive me, I've, I've forgotten the title of the movie. Yeah, Fall of Reach. The Fall, Halo, Fall, the Fall of Reach. Of Reach. Um, how, how did you how, how did you get involved with Halo? Because you said that you know I, it's kind of um, you know funny because earlier on you said that um, you were playing Halo when you had the revelation that you could yes. maybe score from the video games. Yeah, so. yeah it was it was like a like destined to come true as it was really a, a dream come true for me. So yeah, the, the way I got involved, I mean, I really had established myself in the industry before that, as far as let's say a lot of the Tom Clancy games, ghost recons, advanced Warfighters, And, uh, um, I did a Prince of Persia game. I did red steel and, and, uh, Hawks and a whole bunch of stuff. And, and, but, but when halo came around, um, you know, it had already been out. And uh, Marty O'Donnell, Michael Salvatore were the were the guys working on that game, and uh, you know Marty worked at Bungie. So fast forward ten years, so now we're in you know twenty twenty ten. Microsoft approaches a colleague of mine. His name was Paul Lipson to be involved in the Halo anniversary um, release. And what they wanted to do is take this entire score from two thousand and one and recreate it, note for note, re-record everything. Um, and so, you know, Paul and I had known each other for uh, about 10 years and 
he called me up and said, hey, Tom, would you like to be involved in, in this? I'm going to be doing, you know, the Halo anniversary. And I almost, I almost dropped the phone. I mean, you know, Paul knew how much I loved Halo and, you know, he was a big fan himself. So, I mean, we were like laughing and like, I can't really, this is unbelievable. Why are they doing this? What is it? So anyway, that's how I got involved. And it, it was, it was truly amazing because again, I mean, that was the game that kind of inspired me to get into the business and I knew it intimately. So having a chance to actually have to go back through it note for note and listen and recreate it and try to bring it up to date. Uh, as far as production and sounds and what have you, I mean, unbelievable experience and a huge education. So, you know, having gone through that whole process, um, that led to me working on an original score in a game called Spartan Assault, which was on a mobile uh, title. And, and it really enabled me to really learn the DNA of what makes Halo music Halo music, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then I was working on the recreation of the Halo 2 score, Halo 2 Anniversary. And then I was working on Halo Spartan Strike, so I was kind of doing these recreations of the original material and then new scores. And it allowed me to really uh, know how to you know, uh, reverse engineer the music and really do something that was authentic uh, in, the, in the Halo vocabulary. You know, I, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the DNA of what makes Halo music Halo music. So after I had worked on these four release titles, um, then comes along this animated film. My wife had just read the book. And said she loved it. Coincidentally, she just had read the book, you know. And mm -hmm. and and then I get a call. Said, um, "Hey, you know, Tom, we're going to be working on this uh, film. Would you like to to be involved in, in uh, scoring it?" And I, you know, it was like, "Oh my God, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable." My wife just finished reading the book. I she's she's raving about the story. So I said, "Yeah, absolutely." And um, and then I read the book myself, and it was really amazing. And, and that's how that started. Wow! I mean, you know, the the book and the film that you're scoring, it's basically uh, the prequel to the first Halo game, right? That's right. It is the backstory. It's it's unbelievable. It's if you never played Halo, or even if you did, this is the story that tells of how Master Chief became Master Chief. It's kind of like Star Wars, how Darth Vader became Darth Vader. So it literally starts when when Master Chief is a young boy named John at six years old. Wow. And and Dr. Halsey, who who Halo fans would know who she is from the games, was, you know, young and and, and she was with Lieutenant Keys, and that should sound familiar to Halo fans from being you know, from knowing Captain Keys. You know, and they're planning on they're talking about this this impending alien invasion, and she's trying to figure out a way to save the the, the human race. And uh, so it tells the backstory. It introduces all the main characters. It, it, it introduces the whole Spartan Two project, Project Mjolnir. It introduces, uh, you know, we we learn who how Cortana came to be. Not in the film, but in the novel, Cortana was basically the mind mapped. Uh, I guess you'd say she's the AI that was mind mapped from Dr. Halsey's brain. You know, it was really amazing and genius how, how the author, Eric uh, Nyund, um, created this rich backstory that just fits seamlessly into the original Halo game. So uh, it was exciting to be involved in something like that. Yeah, you know, the. The, the passion and that Simon Witch talking about it is making me want to check the movie out when it comes out. So, yeah, yeah, you know? the movie is out. It's actually you can get it on Blu-ray, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it, you know it's great. I mean, they did a good job 
you know, this is not a huge uh, Hollywood big budget film, but I mean, for an animated one hour feature trying to get through what they did, I think they did a really good job. And um, it's a wonderful story. It really is. I suggest people read the book and then see the movie. Mm. I'm going to have a look for it on Amazon later on. <laughs> see, yeah, see if it's great. actually out here in the UK yet. Um, given given that you've actually scored so so much uh, for the Halo games and respective uh, animated properties, uh, how much of a challenge is it for you to keep things consistent but also keep the music fresh with each successive game and um, and animated project? Yeah, you know, it, it is. It's still challenging. I, I'm not sure if it gets more challenging or less challenging, but, I mean, it is, it's always a challenge. I'd have to say it gets more challenging because there's always ways to improve, to make it evolve, and you can't really rest on your laurels. You can't just keep doing what you did before. Um, but you have to be true to, to Halo music. So I think the one thing that gets easier for me is knowing if it's going to work or not. You know, I mean, I can come up with an idea and instantly I'm like, yes no, or no, as far as whether this is an authentic Halo piece or if it's not quite right. So that element, I think, is easier for me. Um, but everything has its own challenges. And, and, you know, for me, this was also a new challenge because it was the first time that I did a, a film based on Halo. You know, so I couldn't follow the same rules as a game. I mean, this time it did have the same beginning, middle, and end, right? So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it did afford me the opportunity to look for ways to foreshadow things that I knew were going to happen or maybe create parallels where, wow, this scene at the beginning is just like this scene at the end. So why don't I use the same piece of music? You know, you can kind of get into it like that. Mm -hmm. But you're also dealing with things that, you know, like the dialogue. I mean, there was a ton of dialogue in the film. So, you know, when you're scoring music, you really you you have to be subservient to the dialogue Um, and the sound effects as well. You know, sometimes the music gets pushed way down, you know, so you got to try to do your best to score in a way where it it will keep supporting the action, uh, uh, keep supporting the film, the, 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 the intent of the director. And uh, and tell the story, you know, and support the emotional arc that that and journey that the director wants to take you through. Yeah, I mean, it's like um, a criticism that I sometimes have um, about Murray Gold and and Doctor Who, and <laughs> and this is crazy, you know, me and nobody criticizing Murray Gold, but you know what what it is is I think there's sometimes in 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 his scores for Doctor Who, um, when there's, cert- there's certain scenes that you know require very little you know and yeah. and um, right. you know i think sometimes um you know unless is more unless is more approach you know absolutely that's very very well, true you know particularly when it's live action you mm-hmm. know you're talking about a live action series right yeah um you know in the case of animation i think it's even more challenging because you're not dealing with human beings you're dealing with just pictures on a screen and um, I think if you talk to any composers who have done animated films and live action, they're always going to tell you that the, the animated films are harder because you, you, the music has an extra burden of, of breathing life and soul into the, into the film. You know, you can get away with a lot less when you have a real actor on the screen because there's just that already built in emotion. But when you're talking about just a cartoon character or something, how do you bring them to life? How do you how do you how do you cause someone to to tear up at a sad scene if you're looking at a character on the screen? And you know it gets harder. It gets harder in the animation work. You know mm-hmm. some some companies have done it amazingly well. Look at Pixar and DreamWorks. But um, but music I think uh, carries an extra burden, and that's something that I had to deal with in the Fall of Breach. Mm-hmm. Um, as a musician as well as a producer, who would you say 
um, and other bands, producers, and other musicians that have been perhaps the most inspiration to you over the years? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I go back to my roots. You know, anytime someone asks me that, I, I say, well, immediately, absolutely. I mean, my one of my favorite producers on the planet is Jimmy Jam. You know, people are like, what? Who's Jimmy Jam? You know, Jimmy Jam was like the sound of, of Janet Jackson and, and Human League, like the, their big song and, and so many R&B artists back in those days. I, I uh, only had the chance to just meet him at a conference one time. And I was, you asked me if I ever get starstruck. I felt like an idiot. That was the one time <laughs> I was starstruck. I'm like, you know, like Jimmy Jam, oh my God. You know, I was like, and he's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that was the first word of his mouth after I went through my tirade of compliments. Like, so, uh, but anyway, so yeah, Jimmy Jam, uh, uh, you know, Quincy Jones, um, um, Trevor, Trevor, um, Trevor Horn, you know, the mm-hmm. producer of Yes and Seal. I mean, unbelievable. I, it's an education listening to his music and, and, and the intricate details and how he just sculpts sound and his, his, uh, his approach. Mutt Lang. You know, oh, I mean, yeah. these are all producers from the 80s and 90s. Yeah, Mutlang uh, did Death Leopard and then went country. <laughs> yeah, right, right. He, yeah. Well, he was smart. He went where, where, the, where the money was. Mm. But, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, so... Married Shania Twain. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, there you go. He told you he was smart. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really my roots. That's kind of where I got my first education, you know. Of course, today I'm always listening and learning from, from you know, composers today. But, you know, for me, I think that's those are my foundational roots as far as knowing how I learning and listening to do uh, what I do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice would you actually impart to any new musicians looking to try and carve their own niche in the industry, you know, whether that be in a band or working behind the scenes in a studio? Yeah, well, it, you know, that's also a really common question. It's a difficult question, but the advice, I think, is always the same. You know, you you always hear you do have to be true to what you do. Uh, you have to be true to who you are, and, and that's the best advice. The, the difficult component of that is, well, if I'm trying to establish myself and the client wants me to sound like someone else, how can I be true to myself and sound like someone else? Mm-hmm. And that's a trap we can get caught into. So, you know, if you're independently wealthy, I'd say forget that. Only do things that are true to who you are. But if you have to make a living and, and try to at the same time establish your identity, well, that's 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 a nuance that is, is a tough uh, road to walk. Because at, while you are accommodating what you're being asked to do, sound like this composer or this artist or that, how do you still infuse your own voice into it and slowly try to evolve towards the essence of what you do best. and Because if you stick to that and what you love doing, then you'll be hired for doing what you love to do. Mm-hmm. And that's the best. The worst thing in the world is to love doing one thing but get hired to do something that you don't love to do, right? I mean, why why are you even getting involved in music? We're, we're, we're not in this for the money. At least I'm not. <laughs> you know? we're, we're because we, there's nothing else that we could think we imagine ourselves doing. Mm-hmm. This is what we do. Yeah, man. And uh, so I think it's true that you always, you know, try to be true to who you are. Try to establish that that niche that you love. You know, it, it's not not really necessarily something that you have to calculate with the left side of your brain. I think it's something that just naturally comes out as your unique identity. Every person on the face of this planet is unique. So just find that and just just keep going, keep writing. You know, exper- it's a journey. It, it really mm-hmm. is. Um, you have the new Hango animated film that you're currently promoting at present. Um, are there any other projects that, that you have in the works that you're particularly excited to talk about at the moment? 
Yeah, yeah. Usually I can't say a word about anything I'm working on in games. This uh, this time around, I mentioned to it before, I am working on a game called Killer Instinct, mm-hmm. uh, which is cool. I'm, I partnered up with uh, with an artist who is a uh, friend of mine. Uh, his name is Cell Dweller. Amazing artist. I'm sure a lot of uh, your listeners might know who he is. And uh, actually, I'm doing that with him, and I'm kind of billing myself as Atlas Plug in that one because we're, I'm kind of going back to my roots of aggressive electronic hard rock you know, modern EDM, whatever cool. that is. And so he and I are doing it together and it's, it's a load of fun. I mean, it's uh and it's funny cause it's a Microsoft project. So it's, and the first time that he and I were ever together in a project musically was when he was cell dweller and I was Atlas plug and we had our music license. And I think that was rally sport challenge as well. So it's kind of funny that it comes full circle. There are a few other things I'm working on, but I can't say what they are, unfortunately. Oh, well, um, can I just say uh, thanks a lot for your time? It's been great speaking with you. Sure, thank it's you, been Ian. Great having you on the show. And that about wraps things up for this week, folks. Um, I'd like to thank Raisa for coming on and helping me out with the uh, with the TV stuff and the preview stuff and discussion. Um, I'd also like to thank Tom Salter for being being a great sport and um, you know coming on the show. You know, I really enjoyed speaking with him um, about music and you know his work in general. So that was great having him on. Um, we'll be back um, probably a week on Friday. Um, we have an interview with the uh, comics writer and uh, a man who's actually heading up a project to bring the Sunday comics back to America, Mark Goldner. So he's going to be on with us in a fortnight's time. Um, in the meantime, you can you know follow other shows here at Sci-Fi Pulse Radio, such as uh, Genre Tainment, which is uh, hosted by Marks and Junie Pyle. Um, but that's about it for this week. Um, I'd like to wish you all a happy new year and hoping it's a great one for you all. And we'll be back at you in about two weeks' time. So bye for now.